we continue this morning was Colossians chapter 1. And as we just recap from last week, we know that Pastor Ed gave us some great background last week. And he pointed out that this church was located near modern-day Turkey. And if you also remember that it was stated that Paul did not plant this church, but it was probably one of his disciples named Ephaphos. But also, he never met these folks at Colossae either. And so this last bit of introductory material makes this letter and the section that we're in today even more spectacular and more challenging for you and me. I say this because it opens up the thought that you and I have to expand in our thinking about the church and our personal prayer life. When you read the letter without the background, without knowing that that Paul never met these folks, that Paul never started this church, that he never got to be there in the congregation, you begin to see the necessity in our own personal um, prayer time that we need to, to understand that we have a large body that we have a corporate body, and that we need to stop and consider um, praying for the church at large. The people you've never met, the Christians that you've never seen, the Christians that you never had a cup of coffee with, need your prayers. They need to know that you're praying for them. Have you ever thought in those terms? I don't think I've spent too many uh, brain cells doing that. I never really stopped to uh, think about it until after I pondered this chapter and this uh, paragraph that I'm in. But we can no longer focus on the continental U.S. nor ourselves, can we? Our prayer lives are challenged because it makes us think beyond me and mine and us. It expands our thinking to greater parameters. God has a greater picture than ECF. We're included in the grand picture, but we're not the picture. And people we've never met in churches yet, they are Christ and they need our prayers. Globally, nationally, state and county-wide, they need our prayers. And the paragraph we'll examine this morning, verses 9 through 12, is letting us see the apostle do an amazing thing. Pray for people in Christ that he has never met. When you read this prayer, you can see the depth, the provocative nature of it, and the conviction which convicts me because I never thought to pray for my brethren in such a way, with such compassion and such fervency. I pray for you here because I know you, I love you, I know you, and I fellowship with a lot of you, but... I've never prayed this fervently for our brother Herman Mills or the Borsics or even the McKeans, which is right down the road in Syracuse. I simply do not know them as well as you, and yet the necessity is there for me to pray with gusto, with compassion, with fervency, with the knowledge that they are my brothers and my sisters, and they need as much prayer as you do and as I do. And so this paragraph kind of makes us expand our thinking a little bit so that we can see beyond 
what God has for us. So this message this morning is, is founded on this simple premise. We should want to pray what Paul wanted for the body of Christ at Colossae. Better yet, we should want for each other here what Paul wanted for the saints. Now the truth is, in a body this size, some of you know some of you very well. Some of you know some people kind of well. And then there are some of you who don't know one another at all. And so what we need to do is have this mindset even in this body. We can start here with praying with folks that we may not know that well, that we may not fellowship with that often, but we, that there are brothers and our sisters and they attend here. They need our prayers. What if we prayed like Paul for each other? We could start here, right? We could start there. What if everyone in ECF included in their prayers time for the desires for each other in the body? What would that prayer look like? What would we say? This is the wealth in the capital of Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 12. Praying like Paul would look like this. Point number one, to pray like Paul would have us wanting more for each other. We would want more for each other. In verse 9, you see this. Read along with me. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking what you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that the heart of God is being expressed through Paul in this statement. This is Paul's desire, and it should be ours. If I could speak a week on each of these, that would be great, but uh, such is life. I think we just have a time for a flyover. The prayer begins with the statement, and so on the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Good things were happening at the Church of Colossae. They were... Be- The neighborhood knew who they were. The town knew who they were. People around them knew who they were. Souls were being saved. There was great preaching going on. There was great body ministry going on. But this was not good enough for Paul. He knew that there was more to be had, more things to do. And some people would say, what's your problem, Paul? I mean, look at us. We're moving. We're grooving. We're forging ahead for Christ. Things are happening here, and people know that things are happening in our body. What's your problem? Because there's more. And Paul says, look, there's more to be had. And I'm praying that for you. There's more to be had. The truth is, being a Christian is not a static state. No one is to rest on their laurels or marching in time, just chugging along. Chug along, Charlie. Things are doing all right. You know, my bills are paid, my... Friends like me, my dog doesn't bite me, and my boss hasn't fired me yet. Things are going along fine. But is that what all you want? There's more. And Paul knows that, and we should be praying that, that we want more. There has to be more growth, more vibrancy for the glory of God. There's no status quo in the Christian life. Just like Tom Hanks, when he was in the movie In the League of Their Own, he was chastising one of his, his players and she began to cry 
And you say, you're crying? There's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. What are you crying for? There's no crying in baseball. The Christian life, there's no static existence. There's no standing still. There's no not wanting more. We need more. We need to desire more. Without continual growth, we can become stagnant. And Peter tells us that in his second letter, Second Peter chapter 1, 4 through 11. So how do we overcome the temptation of staying stationary? Is there a technique, a program, a book to read? That's where I go first, right? How do we get better? You go through a book, you look for a program, seven steps for this, 40 days of purpose for that, and, you know, uh, pray the prayer of this person, and it's all set. No. But where does Paul go? Prayer. He goes to prayer. And what does he pray? In verse 9, he says, Be filled. And it means to be full of meaning. It's full of meaning and significant. Literally, the Greek Greek text says that you may be filled. The idea is filled with full and running over. It means you put your glass under under the tap and you don't take it out. It just keeps running over and over and over. We'll get to what we are to be filled with in just a second. But the more germane question is, why should we be filled? Why do we want others to be filled? Three reasons. The first one is to fill up our deficiency. We all have our deficiencies. We need more knowledge of the Word, and we need more knowledge of God. We're deficient in these areas. We need to know how to handle the Word more. Second deficiency is we need to fully possess and influence and take over. We need God to take over us. You ever see a guy or a woman or a kid who's afraid? What's he consumed of? He's consumed with that fear, right? And you know that he's consumed with that fear because I know when Jonathan was little, we knew that he was consumed with fear, especially when the thunder and lightning came because he was in our bed. We need to be consumed with getting more of God. And of course, third, it's because we're deficient with the quality of character. Remember in John chapter 12, verse 3, when Jesus was there and the woman came with the alabaster box of perfume and broke it over him. Everybody knew in the room that smell. The more our lives are filled with the Word, the mind of Christ, the more our lives can take on the quality and the character of Christ. For second, we are to be filled with the knowledge of His will. Now, this is a big topic, and we could spend weeks here, but I'm still not exhausted. But to keep things fluid, there's an assumption made by Paul that you know what the will of God is, that it is something knowable. So, with that in mind, when we pray, we want to have this understanding. Paul isn't so concerned about the systematics that you know, or how many theolo- you know, theology books that you read, or how many mission-oriented books you read. God wants you to... He wants your life. He wants you to do something with it. And where do you go to find God's will? I remember in Bible school, 
There were various ways that we could find out the will of God, and some of them were not exactly scriptural. But where do we go? We go to the scriptures. He has revealed his will for you and me. And his word, John MacArthur said, God's will is not lost. It's amazing how some people think that God is the Easter Bunny and he has hung, uh, he has hidden Easter eggs all over the place for you to go find them. And then you get a little closer, he says, oh, you're getting warmer. You go over there, oh, you're getting cooler. Oh, over here, you're getting hot. No. God's will is displayed for us in His Word. He doesn't want us to chase and go around like my cat at home and chase his tail going around and around. But God's will is for what? That you be saved. That He's willing that no one be perished. That all come to repentance. God's will is that you be spirit-filled. And this is the will of God that you do not be drunk with wine in excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. God's will is that you be sanctified. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.13 that it's the will of God that you be submissive in whatever government you're in. Now, even this one. And of course in 1 Peter 4, you will suffer for the will of God. God's will is that you will hit the world with the truth that when you do that, you will suffer. That's in there too. And of course, God's will is what? In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Third, He wants you to be filled with His knowledge and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now you notice this little nuance. Look at, look at the verse again so that you won't miss the nuance. You notice that the text does not say all wisdom and all understanding, as though the two were independent and unrelated but all wisdom and understanding because they are intimately tied together. So what is Paul getting at here? Let's... Understanding in the Greek, the word is synesis, which means a uniting, a union, or bringing together. And it looks at the faculty of putting two to two together. In other words, when the teacher puts two and two on the board, your spiritual understanding and your wisdom, or, or you know, like you be understand that the answer is four. God wants you to understand that when you read the Word, that you will come to the, that two and two is four, not five. That you will be able to apply it to your life. That wisdom has to deal with when you read in the book of Proverbs, okay? And you read something in the book of Proverbs, you may have a theoretical knowledge of that, but what God is looking for is that you have the application of it. So what he is saying here is, I don't only, not only want you to know or, or, or have a theory, but I want you to have a working knowledge of the Word in your life. Be filled with that. Be filled with the fact that the Word cannot not only be learned, but it can be applied to your life. We think in theoretical terms so many times. We read that in Christ Jesus, we have been made a new creation. Yet, how many of us go walking around as though that has never changed? Oh, that is great theoretically. That is great positionally. But is it really true? You bet your life it is true. You are a new creature. 
So the understanding and the, and the spiritual wisdom would put these two together and you'd be able to walk. you overcome sin. You'd be able to walk in victory. It's one thing to have a theory of electricity. It's another thing to be an electrician, isn't it? And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul wants us to be people who are able to take the Word and apply it to our lives. Secondly, to pray like Paul is to want the church to walk worthy of its calling. You'll see this theme in three other places that Paul um, writes. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Philippians 1, verse 27, and 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12. What does it mean to desire this for yourself and others? What is the idea of walking worthy? Let's start with the meaning of what it means to walk worthy. It literally means to walk about or around. It means, in the New Testament, it is often used metaphorically of one's behavior or conduct or the one lives or how one lives. You can see that in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, and 1 Corinthians 3, 3, and there's many others. In other words... How do you live your life on a daily basis? How do you live your life outside of this building when no one else is seeing you? When you're on the golf course and you actually missed a shot, but you give yourself a three anyway, make sure you get under par. That's not walking worthy when you, when you can do that, all right? <laughs> what do you do when you're away from this place? What's your life look like? What is it when no one is looking? That's your true character. Then why the call to do so? Well, Scripture never divorces its knowledge from how you live your life. If what you know does not affect your life, then toss it out and learn something new. Toss it out because it's not helping you. If your theology does not work, guess what? Your theology does not work. God wants you to have a theology that works in your life. If you say you know the Lord, then you, then you know that it will be reflected in how you live. You can't let, we can't let ourselves think that we can say one thing and do another. This is to, to do so to be a hypocrite. That's what a hypocrite is. It's an actor doing one thing and saying another. And we should be praying that not, so that not be showing our lives, that we would not be hypocrites. Pray for me that I won't be a hypocrite. Pray that I am the same person at work as I am here and as I am in my home. Pray for me for that. One writer said, The false teachers in Colossae attracted people through their offer of spiritual knowledge, but they did not relate this knowledge to life. In the Christian life, knowledge and obedience go together. There's no separation between learning and living. Anybody get your diploma if you didn't write down what you learned? The wisdom about which Paul prayed was not simply a head knowledge of deep spiritual truth. How many people have you run into? They know theology frontwards, backwards, all around. They could quote Calvin and all of those guys. Yet their lives are a shamble. Spiritual knowledge, does that mean that you have a worthy walk? The true spiritual wisdom must affect your daily life. Wisdom and practical intelligence must go together. And our prayers should be aimed to this end. Let what we know affect our lives. 
Then thirdly, the purpose of our walk, which is the calling before the Lord, which is twofold. Be pleasing to him. Him. Who is the him? It's not in the original, but the him is Christ, the Lord. It's implied by context. In case we have forgotten the salvation that we've been given, the grace that we've been bestowed with was not given so that we could carry on our lives as though nothing happened, as though nothing changed. To do so is not to walk in truth. It is denying the truth. We cannot continue on with our self-centered lives. We have a higher calling to please God, not ourselves. It's amazing to me how many times I serve myself first and foremost. I'm ashamed to say it. I do. And we all are there. We're in that same boat together. We need to pray for one another that that doesn't occur. I look to see what's best for me, not what's pleasing to Him. That needs to change. And I need your prayers. And I'll be praying for you in the same way. James Smith, in 1856, he was a pastor around 1856, hits this point right on the head. He drives it home. Listen to what he says. Every Christian is the Lord's servant, the Lamb's bride, the child of God. Therefore, his daily, hourly aim should be to please God. He should never lose sight of this for one hour. But in every place, in every circumstance, in every undertaking, ask, will this be pleasing to God? God is pleased or displeased with every thought we think. God is pleased or displeased with every word we speak. God is pleased or displeased with every action we perform. Remember, wherever we go, the Holy Spirit was with us. And what do we expose Him to? He's there in our thoughts. He's there what, what we watch. He's there in our speech. So is God displeased or pleased with every emotion we feel? Perhaps we do not sufficiently realize this, he says. We think, we speak, feel, and act without ever considering whether we are pleasing God or not. This job that I have in front of me, it's in a faraway another city. Would it be pleasing for me to take that job if it's more money, but I, don't, I can't find a church? Think about those kind of things. Get it in your mind. Those are all part. This not, ought to be, he said, for he gave us our being redeemed us from sin and damnation, called us by His grace, and has blessed us with innumerable and indeterminable blessings. And all that, that we may glorify Him. And how can we glorify Him but by habitually aiming to please Him? If I forget or lose sight of this, I forget and lose sight of the principal end of my being and well-being. If I miss pleasing God, I miss the boat. If I miss putting him first, then I am not living the way that I should be. And I dare dare say if we took on this attitude, we would bear fruit and want to increase in the knowledge of our God. And of course, people often want to know how to be more spiritual or more pious. But the underlying goal ought to be 
how to know God. And if you know God, the rest will take care of itself. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will follow after you. What is the chief end of men? It's to glorify God and then to enjoy Him forever. He must be first. Why? Simply because it's possible to be very spiritual and religious, at least on the surface. And we all know how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Thirdly, to pray like Paul is to want the following in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. We need all the help we can get, don't we? I don't know about you, but I need a ton every day, even at this very moment. If you're paying halfway attention to life and its struggles, you know you need something and someone greater than you. Just ask those folks who are now in uh, the Midwest. They need someone greater than themselves in this hour to overcome the obstacles that stand in our way. And Paul did not want the church to get discouraged and give up. The battle is ever raging. The Bible tells us time and time again that we are in a warfare. That the, that the lion, that the Satan is like a lion going around seeking whom he may devour. And the battle is ever raging for the Christian. We are in a struggle for our lives. And the Colossian church was getting besieged by false teachers who were causing great distress. What about you? Are you under duress this morning? Is there stress in your life? Are there things that are bothering you? Things that are causing maybe you're not able to sleep as well as you would want to sleep? Take a look around you. Look at the partner, look at the guy next to you, the lady next to you. They may have a smile on their face this morning, but you don't know what they're living through during the week. You don't know what they're handling at home. You don't know what they're handling at their job. You don't know what they're handling at school. You don't know what they're handling in their neighborhood. This time together is precious, but we need to extend it by praying one for another. Because we need the strength. Marriages need mending. Friendships need to be re-brought together. What are we to pray for as we consider this battle? Because our need is great. First, we need the power and might of the Lord. Why? He tells us because of the objective. And what is the objective? It is to endure. It is to last more than one round in the ring. It is to last more than just a few minutes. What is, what is Paul reminding us? It is not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Why do we need to be reminded and prayed for in this fashion? Because we're human. And of course, let's face it, we're Americans. We're Yankees. We can do it very much ourselves, thank you very much. 
We're Americans. We have the Yankee know-how. We can do this. We can do that. All we need to do is pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And guess what? We, we got it made. Liar. That's not. You need the Holy Ghost. You need the power and the might of God. But we tend to lean on our own strength. And of course, you know what that is. It's a recipe for disaster. How do I know that? We must pray in this manner. Lord, don't let my brother forget he has Christ. Let her remember the inherent power of Christ. Don't let my brother or sister forget that we're all still sinners and the game isn't over yet and we're going to be transformed. We're going to endure. Father, let them see the grace. Humility goes a long ways. If you and I would stop and remember that the battle is the Lord's and not ours, we would rely on Him more than ourselves. We need the power of God because we're called upon to endure, to finish the race, to pursue Christ and grow closer to the Lord at every turn. We need things that can only come from the Spirit. Patience, endurance, and joy. We need those things. And those things only come from the Lord. They come from the fruit of the Spirit. They come from Him living inside of us and us knowing and that we walk in that might. We walk not just in theoretical knowledge, but we walk knowing that He is there, that we feel Him. I don't want to belabor the point here, but I could just share a little testimony. Most of you know it anyway. But a few years back, my family and I, we went through a very hard time. It didn't last just a day. It didn't last just a week. It didn't last just a month. It seemed like it was never going to end. It went on for a year or more. We experienced things that we never thought was possible. We saw things that we didn't want to see. The Lord opened up our lives and made it us display. We wouldn't have made it. Our family could have been torn apart by the seams. It could have been ripped open. In a lot of different churches, maybe that would have happened. But you stood with us. You stayed by us. You prayed for us. And we're here because of that. The pain and the anguish of that trial tested our wherewithal. And it had the potential to break our family apart at the seams if we didn't wait on the Lord. And that's the whole idea of patience. When that whole thing broke open, the only thing that I could think of was, God, have mercy. Stay with us. We only have Him. We know we would not have survived without the prayers of the saints and the power and the might of the Spirit. We coveted the prayers then and we do now. We still do. We know prayer works. We know what the Lord can do when He's called upon in the midst of the trial. And guess what? We needed patience. We needed endurance. But also we needed joy. And I tell you what, that wasn't a part of my vocabulary. 
in the beginning of that trial. You know what was part of my vocabulary? How soon will this be over? How quickly can it pass? Where's the ejector button? You know, like in James Bond, you push the injector. Where's the injector button? Ejector button. I didn't have the joy. It wasn't there in the beginning, but I found out something about joy that I never knew before. And guess what? God wasn't interested whether I was happy or not. He wasn't interested whether my life was going like a walk in the park. He was more interested in would I find him? Would I be able to wait upon him? Would I be able to say, Lord, you're my cup, you're my portion, you're everything that I need. Was he there in the middle of it all? That's how I found out. Just like Paul, I've learned to be content. And whatever state that I found myself in, he was there. Joy is being content or satisfied in and with the Lord. That's what contentment is. That's what joy is. It's knowing that he's there and that he's going to be there. It was Nehemiah's secret. The joy of the Lord is my strength. We had to learn in whatever state we were in, and for our family it came about that. So why did he why did why did we do this? Why did we have the endurance or not? Because the goal still had to be the same, to please the Lord. That's the whole goal, to please him. Even though we did not want the trial, even though we had to talk through it, because our, we had to go through it because our lives were not our own, and yes, sin did cause it, but He was still governing through it. He was still there. It was appointed. And thank the Lord we didn't have a Job's wife and tell us, curse God and die. But we had your prayers. We had your support. We had the sense of knowing that the might and the power that we needed was there because the prayers were being prevailed. I can testify prayer works because I'm a product of it. I wouldn't be here preaching today if someone had not prayed for me. I would have been dead by now or in prison. But by the grace of God, through somebody said, save that guy because he's heading to hell in a handbasket. He's a goner. But she prayed. If we are to pray like Paul lastly, we must pray thankfully. In verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Prayer and thankfulness are often joined in Scripture. I'll just give you a few references Daniel 6, verse 10. Philippians 4, verse 6. Colossians 1, verse 3. And Colossians 4, verse 2. And 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Prayer is an expression of our thankfulness to a gracious and living God. It's us saying, thank you, Lord, for our salvation, for giving us the Spirit, for giving us each other, 
In this case, Paul exposes a great deal that has been given to us. You see it in the text already, don't you? Even Stevie Wonder could see this. Our thankfulness can be in two things. First, the gift of grace. He qualified you. In other words, He cleaned you up and placed you in the position of privilege. One you did not have before. There's not one in this room that can stand up and say, I deserve grace. I deserve heaven. None of us can stand up and say that. Not a one of us. But we can all say like Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. As a Christian, we must never forget where we came from, which is death. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were made alive, given a new life, and a very special calling to be able to pray for the saints. What a high calling that is. Not to preach, not to teach, but to pray. To pray for one another and to lift one another up. Qualified in the Greek means to make sufficient to qualify, enable, make fit, but it does not mean to make deserving. In fact, this term may have the shade of the idea of empowerment. The concept that makes good sense in this context where the apostle is dealing with the pleas in the Lord. He has qualified us, empowered us to do that. A capacity that flows out of a Christian's understanding and faith of who she is or he is in Christ. Second thing we're thankful for is the inheritance. Are you thankful for your inheritance? Think about it. You were once not a people, but now the people of God. You were not once had mercy, but now you have mercy. Jesus prayer. Father, I don't I pray for the world now that they would be saved through the word of the of the disciples. We are living testaments of that prayer, of that high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed for you, for me in this room. That now we have something that we can be thankful for. We're part, are you glad that you're part of God's family? Are you delighted that you have a common bond with someone else? Eternal life in Christ. We're all racing toward the same end to finish the race. We lock arms and we drag one another if we have to. We'd be like the Marines, leave no one behind. We have the same Savior, we have the same Father, and we have the same down payment of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit. The word inheritance in Colossians looks at all the believers inherit as their portion in Christ. Justification, the forgiveness of sin, Present heavenly position and spiritual possession, sanctification, the power for life. You are now seated in heavenly places with Christ, and now you still have people helping you to get to that end. Future, which is glorification. I want to see you there. So then, to pray like Paul is to be in prayer for our brothers because we want each of us to receive the crown. We want us to be there. We want to be side by side before the throne and say, Father, what a great God you are. What a merciful God you are. To have this attitude is to have the mind of Christ. To look beyond our own individual needs and pray for the church with the thankfulness that the Lord puts you in it.
for that end, which is to please him. And to please him means to pray for your brothers and your sisters. To pray that the work of God would go forth no matter whether it's in the Philippines, whether it's in Syracuse, or whether it's here in Fairport. All right. So now we've come full circle. What if we prayed like Paul prayed for each other? What would it look like? I found a poem I'd like to share with you. That The title is, I Prayed for You. And it goes like this. I struggled with a problem that was more than I could solve. There was a thousand twisted, twisted knots, and yet even before, even more to solve. I wondered if there'd ever be a moment free from care. Then someone said, I mentioned you this morning in my prayers. Ah, shadows tucked their heads beneath their wings. I saw the light. The problem would be quickly solved. I walked in bright sunlight. For I wasn't struggling by myself. I was not left alone. Someone, someone have remembered me before the Father's throne. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that you've given us to be here this morning, to participate in your grace and your mercy, and to hear your word And how you show us what a great privilege we have to be brother, sister, to be part of the family, and to be able to pray for one another. Father, let this not be theoretical, but let it be practical in our lives, that we would pray one for another, and that we would lift each other before the throne, because indeed we do need your might and we need your power. We need your mercy, we need your grace, we need the whole package. We need it because we want to, our desire is to walk pleasing and worthy of the calling that you've placed upon our lives. I thank you, Lord, for for your word. And I thank you for keeping it. And I pray, Father, that your people have been edified this morning. That they have been encouraged and exhorted unto good works for your glory. And we give you the praise and we give you the thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.